0: Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Well, we're on tour again today.
1: Well, I say we, but actually it's only me, as James is on his own personal tour in the US without us. This time we're at the Welcome Genome Campus Conference Centre in South Cambridge at the CW International Conference, affectionately known as Quick. As some of you know, I've spent more than 25 years in the tech space, so this is really my natural home. It's where CW, otherwise known as Cambridge Wireless, convene the members of tech companies, large and small, and they bring them all together at this event that's that's key for the tech calendar for Cambridge, for the UK and internationally. So I'm super excited to be here recording a Cambridge Tech podcast. I also think it is the most exciting agenda for the last few years. It's exploring how connectivity is now a ubiquitous part of our lives, how we're all connected, whether that's wearable, smart devices, connected cars, houses, cities, and on the list goes. So today there's been about 400 people attending in person, and there's also a virtual version. So goodness knows how many people have been joining online. There's been 39 speakers, six tracks. So we're going to find out some more about the topics from the people that have been presenting and supporting the conference today. First up, I've grabbed Julie Bradford, chair of today's conference and lead of the committee to find out how the theme came about and all the different elements in the program. So how how did that happen? It's a, it's
2: a, it's a very good question. And I think I think the, the, the title of, of today's conference it's it's intentionally ambiguous, a hyper-connected human. It's something that means Different things to to different people, uh, but very much we were trying to understand uh, user expectations of connectivity from lots of different perspectives. And I think that was very much on the back of what we did at Quick last year, where we were talking about the sustainability of of wireless networks. And you know, part of that is around commercial sustainability, the business models for connectivity, um, and that's very much driven by uh, the value that users actually get from that from that connectivity. So we very much wanted to put the, the user center in front um, at the conference today. And the different sessions are trying to reflect the different environments and settings where we expect connectivity in our day-to-day life and some of the big themes, um, such as trust, security, and um, more immersive and collaborative content around uh, the metaverse as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly grabbed my attention. I think it's a really strong um, topic to to be covering, and it's great that CW is doing that. Um, Dr. Shafi Ahmed this morning, he spoke about what an exciting time it was with a range of these exponential technologies coming through. So he listed like blockchain and quantum robotics nanotech wearables and the the list goes on and i was actually talking about how everything's converging together so it really seems to be the start of making some huge changes and so i'm interested to know what your views are are there any key technologies coming out there are there any specific focus areas
2: yes i i mean i i i think the 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 vision that we saw in that in that keynote this morning very much picks up on the 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 themes that, that we're trying to build into into wireless networks with the, the transition to five G technologies. So this, this this idea of having low latency, high bandwidth, more immersive experiences. So for for me, um, I think with where where the technology is going, there's a lot of applications of, um, in particular, immersive. Content more collaborative um, digital worlds, digital twins, um, and we're seeing that coming through not not just in entertainment, but as we saw in the keynote in um, in healthcare, um, also in industrial applications, in training. It, it, it's a, it, it's a, it's it's the the kind of technology that has got applications in in so many different sectors um, beyond beyond entertainment. So I think you know, certainly immersive content, and for the UK. The creatives is an industry that we're particularly strong in. So I think that's a great area for the for the UK to, to champion as well. Um and, and I think the other the other technology area of interest is is IoT, the, the Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Lots of talk at the conference today about sensor technology, about trying to collect data from lots of different sources for different applications. Um, and it's, it's a huge challenge trying to manage that, that data um, and making sure that the different applications don't get siloed in their approach and that we actually have some compatibility across the networks and the, and the sharing of data between between platforms. So I think, yeah, for, for me, that internet of things and also the, the, the more immersive content um, is where the, where the technology is going.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that it, there's so many options for technology and i kind of wonder whether it's the infrastructure that's going to be the slowest so we've got the we've got the ideas we've got the technology things are coming together mm-hmm. you know we've got to manage data better but is the infrastructure actually there to be able to make these these things a reality yeah,
2: well it, it it depends i think on the scenario that that um, that you're talking about for the infrastructure so uh, part of the 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 challenge with networks is sometimes we think a bit ahead of ourselves and we think about having connectivity absolutely everywhere nationwide in all the difficult rural spots. Whereas I think for some of these applications, we can start small mm-hmm. and look at dedicated networks in particular in building locations. And you know, in my day job at Real Wireless, that's that's a theme that we're 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 seeing increasingly where users of, of wireless are actually starting to think what what network and what infrastructure do I actually need in my venue? Um, the, the the football stadiums that we work with are a really good example of that. Where if you're building a new football stadium and you want your spectators and and your, your 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 retailers to have a fantastic connected experience, then you make sure you build connectivity in from day one. And as well, if you do that, you you can ensure things like the um, the visual impact of the equipment. Um, is, 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 is is built into to, to your venue and your design plans as well so you know it, it, it looks better it feels better and the whole thing gels together much much better and I think that's a, a key change that we're seeing the user community is starting to realize you can't just take connectivity for granted um, and you need to start thinking about you know think small, build it into your venue initially and then how do we start to to join up these networks over wider areas?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really valid point, isn't it? I, I remember a few years ago having a conversation here in Cambridge with some of the powers that be about putting digital infrastructure in when you're developing new houses. Yes. You know, yeah. you're putting yeah. water yeah. and electricity. Exactly. You know, digital yeah. is a utility, and I think I think that's changed. But you're right; it's it's kind of everywhere, isn't it? So the more we can think in a broader basis the better
2: absolutely and, it, and it's, a, it's a message that real wireless as a, as a company has has had for the, the 12 years or so that I that I've been work, working for them that you know the user community really need to to think about connectivity and build it in from from day one and that's very much a theme that, that is getting traction with the market and, and our whole client base is just diversifying now. So, so many more people in you know, city councils, airports, off, new office blocks, new, new developments. People are realising connectivity is really is a key component to the, the, the value of their venues and of their developments.
1: Yeah, you certainly need the you need the roads in place to allow yes. the good that you know the good cars and etc. to 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 ride on, don't you? Um, so no, brilliant. Um, lo- love the theme. Also, love the fact that it's online as well. It's a proper hybrid, a hybrid um, event, and uh, you know the content's still available. So, good job, well done. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. So the six tracks are security, identity and privacy, hyperconnected living, living in the metaverse mobility and logistics, hyper-connected entertainment, and health and well-being. So hold on to your seats while we talk to someone from each of these tracks. Before we get into the art of the possible, the first track was on security, identity, and privacy. David Pollington, Head of Research at Block Ventures, talked about the difference of the you identity and the hyperconnected connected you. One has a passport and driving license, et cetera, that proves identity. The other has no validated identity. So my first question, welcome David, is what can or is being done to keep our virtual identities secure?
3: Hi, the it's a very good question. Um, so when you look back at the, the history of the internet, it's, it's great uh, technological innovation, but one of the things it missed out was this identity layer. So there was nothing baked into the, the infrastructure of the internet for being able to support the identification or authentication of individuals transacting on the internet. So what, what we see is that you know there are mechanisms that have been put in place, things like usernames, passwords, et cetera, that act as a, uh, a proxy, if you like, for how a user can go online and actually claim an identity that they can then use for transacting. And what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of those mechanisms, of course, are flawed. They're very easily circumvented. So now we have these additional kind of measures with sort of two-factor authentication. We've probably all experienced having, uh, using the mobile phone as a way of receiving a a separate passcode. Um, And essentially, you know, these multiple mechanisms are a way to actually try to strengthen um, and, and, you know, create more robustness for, for the authentication mechanisms.
1: And you also talked about um, how when we're putting our virtual identities online, we might not always be very truthful. Yeah. Um, what, what do you <laughs> find about that and what are the consequences of that?
3: Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, you know, a lot of the service providers pre-GDPR, we're very keen to, to basically harness as, as much information as they could about their users. And you know, you can't really blame them. You know, the more data they have, then perhaps the more they can mine that data and try and understand who their customers are, and then, you know, provide them with better products, better marketing. Um, etc. But of course, the issue is that, you know, as individuals, we don't necessarily want to be having to give away all that information. If you go shopping down the high street, you don't have to tell them chapter and verse about who you are, where you were born, you know, your age and all these kind of things. So why should you have to do that online? So, you know, increasingly, what we're seeing is that people do want to be able to have different personas when they go into a virtual space. And, and really, it's not about them trying to hide anything or do anything nefarious. It's about them actually just trying to um, provide information about themselves, which is proportionate to the context within which they're they're transacting. And really that's that's the only thing that really matters to most people is that they can have that confidence that the individual that they're transacting with um, is essentially trustworthy and you don't necessarily need to know someone's, you know, date of birth or inside leg measurement in order to be able to buy something off them off eBay.
1: Yeah, unless it's a pair of jeans.
3: <laughs> this is Sorry, a pair of jeans. I just couldn't help myself with that. <laughs>
1: um, so, it's it's going to remain a big issue: the whole security, identity, privacy, and how it's handled. What do you think needs to happen to make it work? And is it to the extent that it needs government intervention?
3: Yeah, I mean, as I as I mentioned in the discussion earlier today. Um, there, there are efforts um, ongoing by some of the standards bodies to so people like um, W3C and the Decentralized Identity Foundation that are trying to now build this scaffolding for identity. So as I said before, we didn't have that in Web in the, the initial um, iteration of the web or in Web 2.0. So now for Web 3, they're trying to, to build that capability. But ultimately, the problem is, is that it runs up against a conflict of business interests in terms of you know the a lot of the big players they want to build up their own understanding and identity of their uh, users and they don't necessarily want to have to be relying on some uh, third party you know nationalized mechanism so it is a bit of a land grab as we said before you know um, companies still want to capture as much data as they can about their customers but it's because a lot of the monetization models on the internet as we're all familiar with is that you then actually um, essentially monetize the individuals as the product and therefore, they need that data. Um, but there are, um, there are you know, different um, activities in both standards, but also at a national level in countries like uh, South Korea, Canada, et cetera, where they are actually trying to build something that can be used by all the digital citizens within that sovereign country.
2: On a
1: personal note now, if I may, so you said at the start of your presentation, you've been at Block for one year. Yeah. Um, but before that, it was 27 years in the telco space and we're at CW. So I just want to get your potted version of what are the <laughs> biggest things that you've seen over those 27 years?
3: Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, it's, uh, it's been fantastic because when I started, you know, my phone was a phone. Um, and not many people had mobile phones. That's really showing my age. Um, but, you know, I was really part of that whole process of how the phone evolved into being a multimedia device and then an internet device and then a personal navigation device. If everyone can remember back to the initial unveiling of the iPhone and Steve Jobs was uh, pulling everyone's leg that actually he was launching four devices and then he basically spun them all around and said, da-da, there's the iPhone. Um, so, yeah, we've seen... Um, You know, the the smartphone basically come of age within that period. The way that people are now hyper-connected, which is the the theme of the discussions today, um, has just changed everybody's lives. And it's not just in the Western world, but in the developing countries as well. Everybody is really latched on to um, the value of being connected. And that's what the, the telco industry has really brought.
1: Yeah, There's certainly a lot going on and it's not going to slow down, is it?
3: No, exactly. Absolutely.
1: Great. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you very much.
1: The last few years have seen an accelerated awareness and appetite for things like connected homes, hybrid working, telemedicine, smart energy, online retail. But the reality is that many of these are individually successful, but not interconnected. So the track on hyperconnected living really tackled the case of how to bring the intelligence, size, power, and accuracy of everything we used to deliver a better individual and more integrated experience. So I've asked Paul Copping, CTO Forley Waterside, to share with us his key takeaways from that session.
4: So we've been involved as members of Cambridge Wireless, who organized this conference for the last few years. And... I'm always delighted to be up here. My role today was chairing this session, which I've um, helped put together. We're trying to look at underneath the metaverse, which people tend to think of as being something visual, and say, how does that all connect at the the layers down so that you've actually got some substance in the imagery that you produce? Because otherwise it's just sort of candy floss and pretty pictures. And we're at that stage now of trying to look at the best thinking in gluing stuff together. So we had some really interesting speakers that we managed to pull from not the most obvious companies really, Dyson. Who knew? Very, very clever people. And um, Bosch. And then our sponsor speaker was Edge Impulse, who are doing little sensors and the technology. And a mate of mine at Southampton University who's a professor of artificial intelligence in citizen-centric AI. And, And he's got a team of very bright people who are looking at how to make all this work so that it benefits individual citizens
1: so what did all these very bright people have to say well
4: essentially in different ways they talked about the the move towards things getting more connected and joined up at a micro level and how that then all gets groomed into a big artificially intelligent understanding of what's going on and then performs better so that people get a better experience better use of the assets and a better price
1: and I think that's, that's a key challenge, isn't it, with hyperconnected living? There's so many things, so many gadgets, devices, tracking systems. They can do so much, but they're all acting in isolation. And until we find a way of pulling them all together, it's just a bit of a headache.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, Bosch are very big in automotive electronics. And that's quite interesting, really, that, they, that you've got tens of thousands of sensors in a car and it all interworks because it's got to. Because you're doing stuff in real time, you can't suddenly say, "Oh, I think I'll go and have a look at the sensors doing the brakes." Um, so the automotive industry has, has cracked it and has got things working on a, on a, a, a plug-and-play system where you can design and, and even upgrade and modify the artificial intelligence. I'm not talking about you know the super loony end of, well, not loony, but you know the future not yet delivered end of, of autonomous driving. I'm just talking about your, your standard modern um, vehicles that that have um set, and they may have sensors and rear view cameras and and things that tell you if the tires are going flat and all that but it all works and it all interconnects and it's not you know you haven't suddenly got a switch platform um and that's i think a really a great objective i'd love my house to be as interconnected as my car is
1: yeah well i think that's a, that's the way it's got to go hasn't it and we'll be it'll be interesting to see how it progresses over the coming months and years <laughs> in my IBM days, Second Life was just emerging. And I remember setting up my first avatar, Gritty Malena for some bizarre reason. I think it <laughs> was all anonymized. You know, they were, just, they were random, weren't they, how they created the name? Um, obviously, Gritty got, got resigned to history. So my first question to Michelle Lim, who is senior behavioral scientist at Cambridge Consultants, who has just spoken at the Living in the Metaverse plenary session, has to be Is the metaverse going to be any different and do I need to brush the dust off, Gritty?
0: (laughs) I love that. Thank you for the question, Pei. And I really like that you've had a brush with, you know, Second Life and what we call maybe even a proto-metaverse or an early version of a metaverse before this hype even started. So that's really cool. Um, I would say, and we had a question in the plenary session about, you know, what's the difference between this new form of the metaverse and um, existing second life, um, all kinds of um, The Sims, even all kinds of games, which really enabled you to go in and pretend to live a life um, that you didn't live in the real world. And for me, Alex Rule mentioned something I thought was interesting, the idea that in the metaverse, it's inoperable, interoperable, so you can bring assets from one world to another. So just because Second Life you know, is no longer quite so popular, it um, doesn't mean that you have lost all of the investment they have built inside. For me personally, what I think is really interesting is the idea that you can take um, something that you're doing in the virtual world and make it mean something in the real world. And I call that the concept of augmentation. So it could be physical augmentation, taking up new skills in the metaverse that, you know, after the headsets shut down, you can still hold and with you and use. It might be, you know, feeling closer to someone than you could without then you could not current technologies or it might be learning something new experiencing something new So for me that's what distinguishes this new metaverse yeah, that, that's great and you, you also said
1: uh, you explained the metaverse as being this physical digital bridge mm-hmm. can you tell
0: us a little bit more about that yeah of course I the reason why I see it as a bridge is because while it's easy to see the metaverse as a separate parallel digital dimension, I think it should encompass the bi-directional relationships between the physical and the virtual world. And that includes how you represent people's avatars, how you represent objects in the virtual world, the connections between human to object and avatar model, that's a mouthful, <laughs> connections, and even um, avatar-to-avatar interaction. So there are just so many multi-layered connections that um, define, I think, the new age of the metaverse. And if we're able to answer these questions and really nail these concepts, I think there's so much higher chance of your product and um, service or whatever you're building in the metaverse really taking flight as opposed to people you know, looking at it saying, ah, this is not something I want to do ever again <laughs> and putting it down.
1: So what, what's your experience with the metaverse? Have you got anything that you currently do that you can share with us?
0: Yeah, so um, we do a little bit of stuff with digital twin simulations. We're looking at trialling consumer testing in the metaverse, actually, which is quite tricky because if you think about traditional consumer testing, it's trying to look at people in a constrained lab environment, asking if the things they do in that environment will apply to the real world when, say, they're grocery shopping. If you bring that to the metaverse, now you have like a, almost a three-way um, link between the real world. So you go from virtual to a constrained lab environment, the constrained lab environment to the world. So um, I think that's, that's pretty tricky and that's quite interesting. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think there's certainly an awful lot going to happen in the coming years of Mm -hmm. people getting their heads around it, first of all, but then, you know, adopting it. And I think Alex showed something that they were doing in PwC as well, which is quite similar to what you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the corporates are starting to dabble, Mm -hmm. um, if not quite successfully in the metaverse.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right.
1: Wouldn't it be great if everyone starts sharing all those experiences so everyone can get there a lot quicker than just trying to do it on their own?
0: Yeah, which is why I think platforms like CW um, and CWIC is so good because it really gives us an opportunity to look at a whole range of what people are doing. And I've learned so much. Yeah, that's great. Um, Thank you very much for your time, Michelle. Cool, thank you.
5: Let's talk about GrowthWorks. It's the fully funded program that's supporting the leaders of ambitious growth businesses to scale and double their profits and productivity. If you're looking to take your business to the next step, GrowthWorks will support you to plan bigger, scale faster, and stay ahead of the game so you can deliver on both your financial and market share targets. Exclusively for businesses across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, GrowthWorks is here to help you. Get started and arrange a call with them, On www.growthworks.uk.
1: The next track was covering all things mobility and logistics. So, whether that was increasing traffic congestion, the unviability of rural public transport, increasing demand for fast delivery of goods, rising fuel costs, climate change, all of those types of topics. So before the conference, Matt Napleton, Chief Commercial Officer at CISO Software, released a paper challenging stakeholders to come together to realize the potential of hyperconnectivity for the automated and accelerated movement of people, items, and goods. So, Matt, hello, and hello. is this the call because you think there's a change in attitude that's more important than the obvious changes in infrastructure?
6: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question and one that I think we're not going to have the answer to right away, primarily because I think there are a lot of areas in play right now. For example, the data privacy issue is one that's been dogging this entire industry for, for many, many, many a year now, um, but also the aspects of of You know, how do I share that information without giving the game away? Logistics in in that kind of aspect is quite a unique industry in the fact that there there are many players at work here. You're not just talking about the individual or delivery organization. You're talking about the entire supply chain. They all have to have that ability and that want to share that information across the entire level of, of data. But equally, the ability to share that data isn't quite there either right, we don't yet have the infrastructure available to say end to end, how do I, I visualise that data? How do I see that data? And how do I get that data to the people who need it in the right way in order to make decisions? So I think it's kind of a two-point approach in that we know where we want to get to, and it's a great idea, but are we there yet? I think we have to challenge ourselves in quite a hefty way to do that.
1: So how? I mean, how does that progress? Because that relies on lots of people coming together and talking and sharing data and information.
6: It's a challenge we've had for a while. I think where we have to understand is an educational approach in hearts and minds that, you know, you aren't going to break the bank if you if you share data. You know, there are some things you should keep close to your chest. Absolutely. But actually, the the main bulk of the information you have doesn't actually deliver any business value to you or any personal value to you unless you give that data context. One of the things we talk about, Azizo, is the idea of a data lifecycle where... We're collecting data, we're combining it, we're giving it context to drive change. Mm. And the fact that you're giving that data context by sharing it, by combining it with other data sets, allows that change in, in infrastructure. And we're starting to see that. People are starting to devolve a bit, but still they are very much putting their hands around it and preventing that from happening.
1: Can you just tell us a little bit about the content of the track, what was interesting, any key highlights for you?
6: I think what was interesting for me was there was a a definite theme around data um, and the sharing information being crucial to the impact on on mobility and logistics. That actually the the move away from traditional kind of logistical capabilities or networking capabilities from an infrastructure standpoint, i.e. hub and spoke, they aren't going to deliver the requirements that we need in this in this hyper-connected world. We're going to have to move to a much more localised set of infrastructure where decisions are driven much more at the edge, being supported by centralised infrastructure, but not driven by that centralised infrastructure. And that was you know, the key from, from, from Anna and Jan as well, about how we talk about EVs, EV charging points, as well as infrastructure and the mobility of people, as well as the mobility of goods. I think what was also very interesting was the notion that um, the sharing of information is, is going to improve over time and that actually we're going to see that devolve into data-driven infrastructure requirements for instance highways agencies alongside different parcel organizations for delivery that's going to improve and change as well by the devolving and understanding that actually this information does have inherent value but only when when we connected with something else so I think there was a really nice string and pull throughout that saying Actually, the data here is key. We have great ideas, but how we then create a whole that's greater than a sum of its parts is going to be key to driving this, this kind of systems forward.
1: And I think there's a couple of interesting points there, like one being the devolution of, of that data and involving other bodies, mm-hmm. whether that be government or, or, or other. Um, and then the other one was about at the edge. And mm-hmm. I think one of the previous um, quick conferences was all about at the edge. Yeah and i think we're starting to see a lot more of that the the you know nano machine yeah. learning and those types of things are starting to come in now
6: i would i totally agree with you i think there's um there's a big push in the states especially with companies like vaporio who are looking at true edge infrastructure migrating away from the the big deal of the telcos to actually having managed infrastructure by cities themselves or managed infrastructure or or, or localized areas managing the infrastructure that relates to themselves a true edge and then pushing that out into localized ecosystems where the flow of data for an individual actually responds to the area around them so you've got really localized environments that's that's starting to come and that's starting something that's that's really going to be there i think edge is edge is going to be vital again the technology isn't necessarily there, you know. We've, we've we've got Zyzer on a you know, Raspberry Pi, for example, um, but you know, going smaller than that, I think, is going to be difficult. But again, there's an understanding, I know. Whereas when, when big data came around, it was a one size fits all approach. I think we've all understood that that was never going to work. We've migrated to a let's pick the right horses for courses. Let's say, actually, this technology is right for this, this technology is right for this, and then use different areas to then say we can do those different things. 5G isn't going to cover everything. We'd love it to, but 5G will quickly run out of bandwidth if we try and do that. It's then understanding how we can actually utilise the other technologies out there that still have a place in all this to drive those kind of requirements.
1: Yeah, and a couple of weeks ago we had a company called, on called InfoSense who were mm-hmm. talking about this tiny ML technology, and you know that yeah. there's there's a lot of similarity to what you've said there. Thank you very much, Matt, for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Okay. And we'll put a link to the paper that's on CW's website. Right. So if anyone has, has listened to you and wants to be part of that stakeholder engagement and, you know, the management of data and all of those types of things, then then they can reach out to you directly.
6: Absolutely. Yeah, please feel free. Thank that's you very much.
1: That's great. Thank you. The hyperconnected humans of today have a huge array of games and pastimes available for entertainment, relaxation and education where users can actually share in real time from anywhere across the world. Dr. Richard Bartle, honorary professor of computer game design at the University of Essex, had some really interesting insights on hyperconnected entertainment. They basically suggested that the virtual world may be impressive en masse but rather than bringing individual players together, it could actually isolate them. The final track was on health and wellbeing where we heard that smart applications, wearable technology, AI, machine learning, virtual reality, they're all contributing to radically improving healthcare delivery and user experience. And that this was not just for the hyperactive and health conscious, but that it could enhance the quality of life for the infirm and support our aging population. So to discuss this further, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Hannah Claridge, Neurotechnology Consultant at TTP, who believes that the future of connected medicine is here today and it's here to stay. So hi, Hannah. Let's start from the top if we can. Can you tell us about neurotechnology and how it is revolutionizing therapies in a connected digital world?
7: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with what is neurotechnology? Um, It's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, um, but to me, neurotechnology is any way in which we can interact with the nervous system. So that could be sensing what's going on in the nervous system, or it can be applying some form of stimulation. Now, the nervous system is part of the body that communicates through electricity. And What I find really fascinating is it's an alternative way of looking at the body compared to the biochemistry that's also going on. So if you think about pharmaceuticals as the traditional drugs that that treat different uh, conditions, um, that's one way of interacting with what's going on in the body. And neurotechnology, neuromodulation is an alternative form of therapy, which is a different way of tapping into some of the things that are going on in the body. And that can be um, really valuable for things like chronic pain, where we know that some of the drugs like opioids have huge side effects. And being able to tap into the nervous system gives a completely different mechanism of action that offers patients more alternative options for treating the, the diseases that they're suffering from.
1: And can, can you tell us a little bit more about some of those innovations? You know, give us some, some other examples. Sure.
7: So there are lots of different parts of the nervous system that we can interact with. So um, one of probably the, the best known is pacemakers. So applying electricity to the heart in order to make sure that the heart, which is in many ways it's an electrical part of the body it's it's a combination of the tissue but the tissue and the muscle and that is being paced by electrical impulses so if something has gone wrong in that you're able to actually apply those electrical signals through a pacemaker in order to kick start the heart and keep it going in it in something very close to its natural rhythm so I think pacemakers are one of the earliest examples of neuromodulation devices. Other devices that you're probably aware of are cochlear implants for deafness. That again, that, is, uh, that has an implant which interfaces directly with the brain bypassing part of the ear, which is which is for one reason or another been damaged. Um, But there are also other devices which people are perhaps less familiar with. There are deep brain stimulation devices where you actually put a really long, thin, tiny electrode into the brain. um, And by stimulating that, you can hugely alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. You can almost remove some of the tremors that people suffer from. Um, There are also vagus nerve stimulation devices. So the vagus nerve runs down the side of your neck it connects the brain to a lot of the rest of the body. And if you apply regular stimulation in a certain pattern there, that's been shown to drastically reduce the incidence of epileptic seizures. Um, It's also really related to multiple different functions of the body, such as the immune system. So it's also been applied for uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis over over a long period number of weeks or months it's been shown to really improve the symptoms there so there are lots of different parts of the body where interacting with the nerves interacting with the nervous system can have therapeutic effects if you understand enough about what's going on to know you know what frequency you're stimulating out what are the waveforms that you need how do you do that how do you interact with the with the body in that way
1: what will stop it what what will stop this taking off in terms of being a hyper-connected human? Is it going to be the infrastructure isn't there? Is it going to be user adoption? Is it going to be something else?
7: I think it's about kind of how quickly can we get things through the the regulated process that we need to get them through. So we're we're talking about the medical device industry. It's highly regulated for good reason. And there's a quite high burden of proof that you need to meet for both demonstrating the safety and the efficacy of the devices. You really need to be able to balance the risks that any device has, both in terms of the surgical procedure, but also longer term, the, the risks associated with having that implant and with a the therapy that you're delivering and that that benefit needs well the risk needs to be balanced with the benefit in a way that works so i think one of the uh, I guess it is a barrier to adoption, but in in many cases, it's just something that slows things down in the medical space is regulation, and I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily. It can be frustrating, but it's it's these regulations exist for really good reason. So I think um, ultimately, the safety of these devices are critical, both for the you know primarily for the individuals involved, but also for the industry. Maybe I can also comment on some of that connectivity space with the devices. So I think, you know, lots of people have been talking about the connectivity of surgical robotics um, for for training, for example. I think the space that I've really been excited about is connecting patients to their caregivers, to their clinicians. So the more that the device that's either implanted or that they're wearing as a wearable medical device if data from those devices are able to be shared with their caregivers, with their clinicians, then the clinicians are able to make decisions Quite remotely about their care. And increasingly, we're also starting to see medical devices that are kind of directly connected and can actually be updated remotely as well. So, through technologies like Bluetooth, it's now possible for patients to meet with their clinician entirely remotely over video call. Not only that, but it's also possible for those clinicians to send them a digital prescription Mm -hmm. for a new set of parameters for their device to optimize it, to maximize the efficacy of the treatment and to minimize the side effects for that individual. And I think being able to do that from the home, being able to do that automatically and in time having that data analytics in place to do that Completely automatically without the clinician having to make those decisions in between. I think that will really improve the care that patients get and will really enable that kind of next generation of of devices and of care for patients.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. So it wouldn't be right to come to a CW event without speaking to someone from CW. So even though he's been super busy today, we've grabbed Obi Naha, COO of CW. Obi, how's the event been today for you?
8: Hey, it's been really good, right? It's really exciting, a lot of energy, seeing old faces, seeing new faces. Some of the talks have been really insightful around the hyperconnected connected human. Um, some futuristic stuff and some really cool startup scale-ups uh, in the exhibition zone too.
1: Yeah, the Exhibition Zone is really lively this year, which is great to see. And I think it's a good mix of the longstanding supporters of CW and also some of the new ones. And you've even got some of the Homerton Changemakers right there as well.
8: Yeah, I mean, and they're brilliant. We've worked with them over the past, I think, about six or nine months. And to have young people so inspired, so passionate, uh, are focusing on social impact and, you know, having tech for good. Is, is brilliant because you know here in the conference we're talking about you know the hyper-connected human and we're looking at commercial business models but also societal impact is, is so important uh, as a community in terms of what we're trying to do so it's been a really interesting uh, good mix of people today
1: yeah and the, the twitter feed's been interesting as well because mm. there's been quite a few comments about tech for good yeah so i think it's definitely something on people's consciousness
8: it, it is. And also, we're also aware as well is look, you know, we have to appeal to the young generation, put diversity uh, into the core of what we're trying to do. And, you know, talking about the metaverse, hyperconnections, it's relevant to the next generation as well. So, not only are we talking about next generation of technologies, but it's also next generation of people and the future leaders as well. So if you look around, uh, hopefully you'll see um, some young people walking around and engaging as well.
1: Yeah, I saw Pat trying to recruit someone for Texters earlier on as well.
8: Yeah, yeah, Texas is brilliant uh, because that's an initiative also here in Cambridge where also we're trying to get young people from the more, more challenging environments or challenging areas uh, within Cambridge and, and provide them with digital skills. And not only providing them with digital skills, where the industry, we've got industry leaders imparting a lot of knowledge and contacts, but it's also providing connections to help them to connect with the industry and, and look at career progression as well. So I think as a community, it's great. There's investment in the, in the regional community, but there are people out there who find it difficult to get, get in. So it's, I think it's, it's our role to actually help those people too.
1: Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah. And I know we'll we'll have to have you back on at some point talking about Cambridge Tech Week because I know you're doing things with Cambridge Science Centre and Cambridge Launchpad for the future as well. That's right. Um, so that that ticks that box. Now I have to bring something up because, as sure. you know, sitting on the board for a few years, yeah, um, women in tech is obviously one of my things. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm really pleased to see you've got a good amount of women on the agenda. Yeah. Um, this year, how was it? Was it still difficult? to find those speakers?
8: It was difficult, actually, right? And, um, you know, we're really committed to this. So uh, Rachel and the team have gone out of their way, also with the committee members, to say, uh, when we have speakers and chairs, it has to be uh, diverse and inclusive. So we've had to reach out to, to a lot of people to get through to those people and have women speaking. But actually, when you look at the women that we actually have, they're just brilliant, all right, in terms of representing what they're doing at the best. It just takes time and effort to, to go out and, and you know, ask for it as well. But we're serious about it and we're committed in doing it uh, because if we talk about diversity and inclusion, we have to practice it and, and preach it and do it.
1: Great. Yeah. That's great to hear. Um, so thank you for your time. Can you just do a bit of a promo on CW? You know, why should people get involved? And um, anyone who wasn't here today, yeah, can they pick up the content from anywhere?
8: Yeah, so they can pick it up. I believe a lot of this information that was presented today will be available online. So go to our website. You should be able to access it. In terms of the membership, we've been going around for about, I think, about 15, 16 years or so. So it's quite a, a rich environment of tech ecosystem people that we have, about 57% of our members are outside of the East of England in about 18 countries. So although it's Cambridge, it's Cambridge Wireless, it's actually quite far reaching in terms of what we do and the impact we make. And I think the benefit is really is, if you're into tech, wireless, digital connectivity, you want to be part of a growing ecosystem, then reach out to us. If you're also young, diverse, inclusive, please reach out to us again. And we also have a program, uh, initiatives where if you are under 21, you can attend our events for free as well. So, you know, uh, yeah, please do reach out to us.
1: That's great. And we'll put the URL on the um, podcast as well for you. Thanks, Obi. All right, Faith, thank you. The conference closed with a thought-provoking address by author, advisor and commentator, David Birch. David's talk was on growing the data economy and had some really specific calls to action in there. So we're thrilled to have David join us to give us a quick overview on that session.
5: Sure. Thanks very much for inviting me along. So so the thing is, I don't want to sound like another famous person that you may remember, but we need growth. We have to have economic growth. But a bigger and bigger part of our economy is the data economy. Data is a bigger and bigger part of our economy. So growing the economy doesn't mean, I don't know, whatever it used to mean, digging more coal mines or making more bicycles or something. It means growing the data economy. And that's problematic because that means simultaneously moving data around the economy. I mean, you know, data that sits in hordes, uh, it doesn't benefit the society as a whole. You know, it benefits the owners of the hordes, but we need it to work. And, and yet, simultaneously, we want privacy. We don't want the data to be abused. And that sounds like a little bit of a paradox, but, but my point is we have technological and organizational breakthroughs which, which can make all the difference. And on the technological side, I was talking about what I've taken to calling counterintuitive cryptography. And what I mean by that is, you know, from the world of Bitcoin and the blockchain, all this sort of thing, we have all this new cryptography now. We have zero-knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption and so on. <clears throat> so we can move data around without sharing people's personal information, spraying it all over the web. Or to use the canonical example that everybody uses, there's a world of difference between proving to you that I'm over 18, like in a pub or something, and giving you my date of birth or my age or whatever. So so we have these technological advances, which we didn't have a few years ago, which I'm quite optimistic about. <clears throat> but we also have... You know these organisational changes. You, you know, I was discussing the idea of data trusts, and uh, you know, building on where we started with open banking regulation to move towards, uh, you know, more sort of open finance. People are talking about shifting away from financial services and towards financial health, and then ultimately onto more sort of open data in general. Uh, you know, which deals with issues like big tech and so on and so forth. So, so, so there's this apparent paradox, <clears throat> but actually we have. Some technological changes, which which give us some opportunities there, and we also have these kind of new organisational structures emerging, which um, you know, which, which allow us to use those technologies confidently. And of course, you know, I, I finished up by by basically saying, look, this means the government needs to push on with this open data agenda. And you know, we've learned a lot of things from open banking. Um, but we could learn from other countries now, you know, look at what Australia is doing with consumer data rights and things like that, and we and push it forward. And so, you know, yes, we want growth, but we want to grow the new economy.
1: There are three things that kind of jumped out at me. It's obviously, it's the tech advances, and we've talked a lot about those throughout the day. Um, trust I think is really important and David Pollington talked about that in, in his session as well but actually the thing that that you know the whole thing on data economy and how data benefits society is super important because there's no just so much data out there and a lot of it isn't actually being utilized and it just got me thinking we, we talked earlier about tech for good what about data for good
5: I mean, you're right, and you know, using data as a as a public resource for the public good is is critical because we need to we need to build on that. So, and this is where these new institutions come in because how can I persuade you to share my like a health data? Health data is a very good example. How can I persuade you to share my health data, which will be for the good of society, confident in the knowledge that you're not going to abuse it and you know spy on me and all this sort of thing? So. The technology is one part of that, but I'm I'm very curious about these new institutions. There's this idea of data trust, where the UK actually does have a little bit of a a little bit of thought leadership, especially combined with artificial intelligence. You know, because you need to feed these AIs with these massive quantities of data, and the potential for abuse is very great. So this idea that you have something like a trust, where you have trustees who ensure that the data is only used for the right purposes, and ensure the right technology is used to, to, keep, to keep personal information personal. Well, I, I think these are breakthroughs, you know?
1: It's almost like we've gone full circle back to the first plenary session of the day on security, identity, and privacy. You know, you nail those, um, actually the rest of being a hyper-connected human kind of works.
5: I think we should set the bar very high on those, actually. I, I, I'm a little bit nervous when people talk about trading off security and privacy I, I don't agree with that i think we need a high bar. we need security and privacy we need to set the bar quite high on that the point about identity i think is very central not just to this but to a lot of other issues one sort of missing piece of the jigsaw is is digital identity i mean if you look at the you know if you look at the figures for fraud and and, and you know it's and we seem to have built this weird sort of identity thing where I've got to send a photocopy. Of, this is true, by the way. I have to do this. I've got to send a photocopy of my driving license to my new accountant, who, by the way, is not an international expert in anti-terrorist counterfeit driving license detection. Is my accountant. She's going to put it in a drawer somewhere. You think that inconvenience is like mafia super bosses from Ozark and things like No, of course not. So we've ended up in this weird situation where we put all these speed bumps in for normal people, mm-hmm which do nothing but help criminals. And, and, and we, need, we need a real digital identity infrastructure and we don't have anything like it at the moment. So actually, I think you're right to centre on that. I think that is, a, that is a missing piece of the jigsaw.
1: I know it's the end of the conference and you're the last speaker, so everyone's going to want to be talking to you. So thank you very much for your time. You're
5: very kind. Thank you very much.
1: Well, that's it. What a day. The idea of QUIC is to provoke ideas and discussion and really challenge technology's role and capability to deliver what is needed. And I think they certainly did that in the annual conference today. We hope you've enjoyed this quick insight into the hyper-connected human. And now I'm off to do something that CW is great at, a bit of networking. See you next week.
0: Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.
1: If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on site cafe, plenty of green outside space, and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.